Scripture reading for tonight's lesson will be from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Good evening. I hope you have your Bibles open to the text that we just heard before us this evening in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that is where we will be taking the thoughts of our study from this evening, there in 2 Samuel in the 7th chapter. A very important text of Scripture in the whole Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, but it has a great deal of ramifications for us as believers in Christ. And so I hope that you will be studying along with us tonight as we look at the scriptures and examine them for our edification and building up of our faith. A couple of months ago, I presented a lesson on the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that and the promises that God established with Abraham, and tried to show how in Christ we have seen the fulfillment of that covenant. And one of the things that I began at thinking about whenever you think about the Bible as a whole, it sometimes is a very complicated story. Because while it starts out in somewhat of a linear fashion and goes in somewhat chronological order, there eventually comes a time where we are left scratching our heads wondering, why is this in here and what does this have to do with Abraham or David or anybody of any significance in the Scriptures? And we are left with sometimes more questions than we have answers because of the twists and turns that the story leads us on. And we lose sight of the, the big picture. However, I believe if we are honest with ourselves as we study, there are some significant points in the story that can help us just remember our way. That if we could leave... a a trail of breadcrumbs, if you will, or that if we could just 
know where those hitching points are that we can get from point A to point B to point C. And that way we can lose, we can keep sight of the journey and what God's plan is. That I think it will be beneficial. And one of the ways that I have found personally beneficial to think about the Bible as a unified story is by understanding God's covenants that He has established with particularly individuals like Abraham or here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with David. I think these covenants answer a lot and they help us get to a better understanding of the New Testament as the New Covenant as well. But understanding the critical function of these covenants helps us see the whole story. And so tonight I want us to explore what this covenant was that God established with David. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and in verse 1, it says, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. David, he's seeing the unfairness of how well he has been blessed and how much God has given him, how he has been given rest from his enemies of war, that now he is getting to rule during a peacetime, and that he is in a house that is made of cedar. He's living a very luxurious life. But the tent and the tabernacle and the ark of God, it's just this very unpermanent kind of structure. It's just a tent that could get blown away. And David, he initiates this conversation with Nathan. And Nathan says, you do whatever you have in your mind. That David wanted to build a house, a temple for the Lord. However, as Nathan is corrected, um, the Lord appears to Nathan at night and tells him to say, go back to David and tell him, no, 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 things are just fine. But what ends up happening is that God makes a statement to David through the prophet. And in verse 11, Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And so while David wanted to build a house for the Lord, it ends up being the opposite, that the Lord, by His grace and by His kindness, He wants to establish David's household. And for a king of Israel, that was implying that I'm going to establish your house, your rule, and an heir of yours will always be sitting on the throne. That you will establish a dynasty here. And so in verse 12, it says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I think they're talking very specifically about Solomon. How Solomon was going to be David's son who would take the throne, and he would be the one who was going to oversee the construction of of that permanent structure that David so desired 
to build for the Lord. And it says in verse 14, I will be a father to him. This is God speaking. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him and the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I am removed from before you. So David is told that even though you will have a son, he's going to build that temple that you want, that permanent house for me, even whenever he's unfaithful. My promises are going to still continue. My promise to you, David, for your sake, I am going to fulfill this covenant. And then he comes to verse 16. And he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. What a grand promise that would be extended beyond just David's son or even grandson or even a great-grandson or however many greats you want to add before grandson. That this is going to be a covenant with everlasting implications. And so God established this covenant with David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a very important time, a very important moment along our journey in understanding the plan of God. And so as you continue on in the Scriptures, I think we begin to see the importance and significance of this covenant that God promised to David. And the Scriptures praise God for it. Notice in Psalm 89, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 89, this is not a psalm that was written by David. But what you see is that this was a psalm that in the covenant, about the covenant that God was making with David. And it was a very well-known promise that God was establishing. And it says here in Psalm 89 and in verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And so the psalm begins with this opening praise of God's faithfulness, of how God is going to fulfill His promises, and that how one of David's heirs, one of his descendants, will sit on David's throne. You can skip on down to verse 19. The psalmist would go on to praise God about this very significant covenant. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. What a wonderful promise that God has made to David. 
He goes on in verse 24, My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall, see, I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever in his throne as the days of heaven. That this is going to be a permanent thing. This is going to be the beginning of an eternal kingdom. And God is saying, I am going to do this because I am going to treat David as my firstborn. He's going to be the highest of the kings of the earth. He continues on in verse 30. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. And so, just because you're a child of David, a grandson of David, or something of that nature, doesn't mean you get off the hook. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be unpunished if you do something wrong, if you violate God's commands. The psalmist recognizes that God is going to deal with them for their disobedience. But he says in verse 33, But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. I think you can see just the grandiose language here in Psalm 89 about the psalmist and how he is praising God, how he recognizes the importance and the significance of the covenant that God was establishing with David. And how God was saying, by my faithfulness, by who I am, by virtue of my word and my promises, I am going to do what I say. This is not some insignificant moment that we have read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God had anointed David as the king of Israel and chose to work through him to establish His rule, His kingdom, and His dynasty forever. And I love the picture in Psalm 89, and verse 26, talking about David. He will cry to me, God, You are my Father. Describe such a close relationship. We know how David is described as a man after God's own heart. And David was going to be able to look upon God as His own Father. And in the language that we looked at in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it should not go unnoticed how God is going to be seen. That He says in verse 14, talking about David's descendants, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. That there is a familial relationship 
that God was establishing between him and the lineage of David. And so whenever we come to other passages in the Old Testament Scriptures, particularly in the book of Isaiah, I invite you to be turning there with me. In Isaiah chapter 7, there is an interesting point here at which Ahaz is king in Judah, and there are there's the threat of war against Jerusalem and Judah. And Isaiah is told to go before Ahaz. And Ahaz is a very wicked king. And bear in mind, this is a descendant of David. But he's a wicked king. And Isaiah says to him, in verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 7, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Look, if God tells you to ask Him to do something, ask Him to do something. Don't fall for the pretense and uh, this look of humility. Because he is then punished. He says in verse 13, or rebuked, he says, then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Look, you won't ask for a sign. But then he says in verse 14, therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Because of your pretense and your false humility, God is going to give you a sign. He, he said that He was going to be willing to let you ask what sign you wanted. But now the Lord is going to give you a sign to the house of David. Behold, a virgin will bear, be with a child and bear a son. And she will call His name Emmanuel. A couple of chapters later in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9 and in verse 6. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. I believe this is talking about the child that would be born of the virgin earlier in chapter 7. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah is prophesying about the very covenant that God made with David. He's saying there's going to be a child that is born. He is going to rule and He is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He is going to rule on the throne of David and establishing that kingdom forever. Just as God promised He would. Another couple chapters later in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11 and in verses 1 and 2, it's talking about the Messiah. He says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And Jesse is David's father. 
how this shoot or this branch is going to come up from the stem of Jesse, from the root of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. He goes on at the end of, or in the middle of that chapter in verse 10, then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. These are just a few passages that are very prominent in the early parts of Isaiah. You can continue on in, in the book of Isaiah where he talks about the sure mercies of David and how God is going to fulfill those things. In Isaiah chapter 55, there's the great invitation for anyone to come and to be part of the kingdom that is going to be established that the Messiah is going to rule and enjoy, give peace and salvation to. And he says in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Now, many of the passages that Isaiah prophesies about are looking forward in anticipation for what God is going to do in fulfilling the promise to David. And as we can see in the New Testament, that these passages are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, in Matthew, the first chapter, Matthew, he quotes, as he is talking about the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. He says in verse 22, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. In Acts chapter 13, the preaching of the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 13, as he is talking about God's fulfillment of the promises to the children of Israel and to David, and how Jesus has been raised up to sit on the throne, how He is now reigning as King, in Acts chapter 13 and in verse 32, it says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that He raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, He has spoken in this way, and He quotes from Isaiah chapter 55, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. He says, Jesus has fulfilled this covenant, this promise, which probably many of us know and are very well aware of some of the significant people in 
Jesus's lineage and genealogy. But we sometimes can lose sight of the fact that what the Scriptures tell and reveal to us about getting from David all the way to Jesus. There were some interesting things that took place that I think bear out in a study of just how God was going to be faithful to fulfill this promise. Because David had a son named Solomon. And Solomon ruled over the United Kingdom in a peacetime situation. But Solomon was unfaithful to, to the Lord. He was led away by his many wives. And his son Rehoboam took the throne. And during Rehoboam's reign, the kingdom was divided. And so you had the ten northern tribes, the kingdom of Israel, where Jeroboam reigned. And then you had Rehoboam reigning the two tribes, the kingdom of Judah, with Judah and Benjamin. And what is significant for us to just recognize and know this as fact is that the Davidic lineage is always traced through the kingdom of Judah. That the line of David never made its way into the kingdoms and the kings of Israel and the northern tribes. And that made it easy for the Lord. Whenever Israel was unfaithful, the Assyrians were able to come in and wipe them out. But when Judah was unfaithful, God was going to have to orchestrate some things a little bit differently with Judah. It wasn't going to be able to be an annihilation. It was going to have to be a captivity with a promised return. And what is sad is that that was necessary. During the days of the divided kingdom, the Davidic line was not always faithful to God. And at times, it grew dangerously thin. One passage I want to examine with you this evening is found in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 22. I think this will illustrate for us the great wickedness in some of the kings of Judah and even of David's family. In the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 22, God here is cursing one of David's descendants. His name is Jeconiah. And in, beginning in verse 24, it says, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off, and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. He's saying, you're going off into captivity, Jeconiah. You have been unfaithful. Even though you've been in a place of prominence, I'm going to cast you off. He says in verse 27, But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. And then 
or the series of quotations in verse 28. Is this man, Kuniah, a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? These, this is Jeremiah using a little bit of poetic license, if you will, of what people might say about him. That how far he has fallen, if you will. Why would he be treated this way? In verse 29, O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. This is a horrible curse upon the family of David. Now if you feel a little bit of tension right here, I think that's a good thing. I think you're supposed to pick up on it and recognize it. How in the world could God make these two statements? One to David. David, out of your descendants, your throne is going to last forever. One of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. How is that okay? How is that going to work with this curse where God says, Jeconiah, one of David's great, 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 great grandchild, how is he going to be rendered childless as if one of his children would never sit on the throne again? How are those things going to be reconciled? Can they be reconciled? That takes us into the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, sometimes we don't like studying the genealogies of Jesus. I, I really, I, I do. I like studying them because I, I find them fascinating. Because there's little things that we can, that can really shape our understanding if we can spend some time with those things. Even though we may not like reading all the names, the hard, pronounced, hard to pronounce names and things like that. In Matthew chapter 1, in the first 17 verses, Matthew presents a genealogy of Jesus. And what is interesting here is, obviously, the beginning in verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. No problems there, right? But then as you continue on, in verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Okay, And then we have a long list of the kings of Judah. But when it becomes interesting is verse 11. Here in the genealogy of, of Jesus, it says, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah is here in the genealogy of Jesus. If your alarm bells are starting to sound, this sounds kind of like a Bible contradiction or something, that there is a problem here. Just hold on. 
Because it might look like problem, uh, like like there's a problem, but I promise you, God has a solution to the problem. But what we see here is that this is a genealogy from getting us from David to Jesus here. And it's including Jeconiah who was told by God, because of your great wickedness, you are not going to have a son on the throne. That's never going to happen again. But God has a solution. That His Messiah was going to still be a descendant of David, but not a descendant of Solomon and Jeconiah. You turn over, you might want to hold your place there in Matthew chapter 1, but if you will turn to Luke chapter 3. In Luke, the third chapter, this is Luke's record of the genealogy of Jesus. And there are some notable differences here. And one of the differences that stands out at the outset is that what Luke does is he starts with Jesus and works his way back, whereas Matthew starts with Abraham and works his way down to Jesus. That's one of the notable differences. But there are some other differences that are very significant for our study tonight. In verse 31, these are just a few names that we will be reading, and some of them will become a little bit more obvious to us. The son of Malia, the son of Minah, the son of... Mathatha, see I can't even pronounce some of these names. The son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Neheshon. You see what some of these names are. It's getting us to David, isn't it? But it does not trace through Solomon. Did you notice that? That the son of Nathan in verse 31, then it's the son of David. So you go from Nathan back to David. David had other children besides Solomon. Solomon was just the one who was reigning as king. But Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus through David's other son, Nathan. The genealogies of Jesus are different. And they must be tracing Jesus' lineage from different parents. I believe what Luke is showing us is that Luke is using Mary's genealogy through Nathan, David's son Nathan. And Matthew is using Jesus' genealogy through a legal standpoint, through his adoptive father, Joseph. But what is significant about this is going back to this chart right here, is that God had a solution to this problem that we have. Where God has made a covenant with David that one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. But then also in Jeremiah chapter 22 with the curse 
that was on Jeconiah that none of your children will ever sit on the throne ever again. How is that going to be reconciled? The solution is a virgin birth that was not through the line of Solomon. God's solution necessitated that Jesus, the Messiah, be born of a virgin. And that is why Isaiah prophesied of it in Isaiah chapter 7 about 700 years or so before Jesus was ever born. The only way that Jesus was a fleshly descendant of David was through Mary, who was not a descendant of Jeconiah, so God was going to be able to be faithful to putting a child of David on the throne while also ending the rule of David's wicked children. And so as you might see in Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus is a descendant of David and Abraham, fulfilling both of those significant covenants, but also as you read in Luke chapter 1, in Luke, the first chapter, and in verse 32 and 33, notice here as Gabriel, the angel, appears to Mary, announcing that she is going to be with child. It says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Gabriel announced that Jesus was going to be called Son of the Most High God. He is going to sit on David's throne. Why? Because he is a fleshly descendant of David. God is going to fulfill that covenant. It's not going to be necessarily the way that we expected it, but he is fulfilling that covenant. He is faithful to his promises. Jesus would ask the Pharisees later on in his life, after just before he was going to die, in Matthew chapter 22, he asked the Pharisees about who the Messiah was going to be. And they answered correctly that he is going to be a son of David. Now with David having multiple children, God never designated which one it was going to be. God said it's going to be through David. One of your descendants will sit on the throne. And as Peter was proclaiming on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as he was proclaiming that Jesus was a fulfillment of the promises and the expectations that we have been seeing and recognizing this evening, that Jesus is a descendant of David who is now sitting on the throne in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 30. It says, And so because He was a prophet, speaking about David, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus... God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. He continues on in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain 
that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the one who sits on the throne. He is the one who is the Son of David and the Son of God. Of significance in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, as Paul acknowledges his role in preaching the gospel as an apostle of Christ. In Romans chapter 1, and in verse 1, Paul, in this introduction, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, speaking about the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. You ever stop to just recognize that phrase here? In the claim that Paul is making, that Jesus, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, it is about Jesus being born of a descendant of David. That's so critical because of the promise and the covenant that God had established with David. That the Gospel is the fulfillment of that promise and that covenant. But also of significance is the fact that Jesus, His Son, God's Son, was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Think about that with me for a moment. How in the world was Jesus a descendant of David according to the flesh? Because that certainly was not true when He doesn't have a biological father. When He was born of a virgin, Mary must have been a descendant of David according to the flesh. And so by implication, what Paul is doing here, he is referring and making a claim to the virgin birth here. I hear people sometimes say that, well, you can't believe in the virgin birth because the Apostle Paul never refers to it. Well, they're wrong. Because Paul has to be talking about it right here. He can't be talking about Joseph, an adoptive father, of Jesus, a non-biological father of Jesus. He can't be referring to Joseph here. He has to be talking about Mary. If Jesus is a descendant of David according to the flesh. And then he says that in verse 4, that Jesus is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And He is... The Son of God. Remember the relationship that we noticed, the language that God was referring to as the family of David? How even David is going to be able to call God his Father in Psalm 89 and verse 26 and in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Jesus is the Son of God. 
he has a very unique relationship with God. And that has been demonstrated because of the resurrection of Christ. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messianic hope and the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. He is the one who is reigning as king over the kingdom of God. The language of Isaiah, the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 9, and in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God did accomplish it through Jesus. Jesus is our King who is ruling over an eternal kingdom over the church today. The kingdom of God is here, of which Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, ruling. The Davidic covenant helps us see God's grace and God's faithfulness, how God is going to keep His promises and keep His word. The Davidic covenant helps us see God's plan to bring a descendant of David to the throne of God to rule over that eternal kingdom. And the gospel that we preach and we believe is principled upon the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant with David. And that Jesus is our King. Jesus is the King who has brought victory over Satan, sin, and even death. And we firmly believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, a descendant of David. Through the cross, Jesus destroyed sin. Through the resurrection, He destroyed death, which ultimately destroys the power of Satan, bringing salvation and hope for us if we will believe on Him and obey His Gospel. Tonight, if you have not rendered obedience to the Gospel, we want you to become a child of God. We want you to become a part of the Kingdom of God by believing in Jesus, that He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That in Jesus there is salvation and hope. There's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Will you not come believing in Him today? If there is something that we can do to help you this evening, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?